Good morning. Um, when I uh, was first asked to do this message, I thought, forgiveness, I'm always glad to have a topic given to me um, whenever I preach, it kind of helps uh, with that. Um, and forgiveness is one that, you know, that's, that's good, there should be plenty of material on forgiveness. And there is, there's a lot of material on forgiveness. And uh, so I had a little... I had a little trouble condensing this message down to the time period of which we would all be comfortable with this morning, uh, but here we go. Um, I lived in the country growing up, and uh, so our neighbors were spread out, but it was lucky, I say lucky, enough to have neighbors that were close to similar to our age. And in Pennsylvania, not all yards were suitable for, for baseball. In Illinois, it's a little hard to understand, but flat surfaces in Pennsylvania were a luxury. So our yard was flat enough that we could have uh, set up a baseball field. There were three neighbors who were uh, three brothers that were farmers, and they would come down, and one other neighbor, and I'll I'll, uh, not mention the names to protect the innocent in this story. Um, I don't know the spiritual details of the farming family, but uh, they weren't churchgoers, and so the language that was used in these uh, competitions, uh, wiffle ball, could get pretty vulgar. Um, and so I remember in one particular time, uh, in wiffle ball, you don't necessarily, you, the one way to get someone out is to go touch the bag you know, run and touch the bag with your foot. The other way to get someone out in wiffle ball is to throw the ball as hard as you can and hit them before they get, we all, I see heads nodding, yep, yep. Now wiffle ball is a, if you're not aware, is a small plastic ball and it's light, it's non-threatening, but at certain distances it can leave a welt, okay? And these brothers took great joy and throwing it as hard as they could to their other brothers to create welts. And a lot of times, they weren't wearing shirts, so it was a little bit easier to do that. Um, and, of course, the profanity would, would proceed after these kind of events. Um, and there was one particular time that I remember that I, before I knew it happened, I said one of these profanity words. I don't remember which one it was but it was out of my mouth before I realized it. And I immediately was devastated. I was eight, 10 years old, so you kind of give you a time frame. And I said, I gotta go, I, I, I need to go. So I ran to the house, mom was in the kitchen. I said, mom, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was out of my mouth before I realized it. I, and I was just full of regret. And I don't remember the exact details of the prayer or whatever, but I just remember leaving the kitchen <sighs> relieved, the forgiveness that I felt because of, uh, of that. And so I returned to the game, and we can talk about the, the influence of, negative influences of other people uh, another time. But for the, in this case, the forgiveness that I felt in that moment was real, and I remember that to this day. And isn't it just like how... Jesus wants us to be that as little children when we, when we transgress, when we do something that is against him, that we come to him immediately 
with regret and, and with a sorrowful heart. And uh, as we become older, that, does, that seems to go away. I don't know necessarily why that is. Maybe we just get tired of being wrong and don't want to say we're wrong one more time. Uh, I don't know if that's what it is or not. But I was reminded as I was studying this, this lesson of uh, the old Elton John song. Uh, it's a secular song, and I don't know if you, many of you may be familiar with it, but sorry seems to be the hardest word. Are you familiar with that song? The lyrics go, it's sad, so sad, such a sad, sad situation. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. I remember, I thought about the Fonz. How many remember Happy Days, the TV show? And the Fonz was, hey, uh, cool. Fonz was the coolest. And I remember a particular episode where he had to admit he was wrong, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't say the words. I don't know if you remember that scene. But he's, he, was, he would go and say, I was I was he, couldn't, he could not get the word out. And I think of the character of the Fonz. The Fonzie character was cool. That was, that was his appeal. We all want to be cool. We all want to be always right. We don't want to have to say, I was wrong. And that, that's why one of the reasons why his character was so popular is because Fonzie was cool. And he did everything right. And he was amazing. And so... That's not who we are. In some ways, forgiveness is the most basic element in good news of the gospel. Jesus forgives. Forgiveness and the act of forgiving are so much a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ, it is difficult to know where for me to stop. Um, and today we come to the part of the Lord's Prayer that speaks of forgiveness. And Jesus offers an additional teaching at the end of the prayer on forgiveness and what that means. The, uh, the prayer is found in, in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also for, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. And here we have the commentary, oh, but deliver us from evil. The commentary at the end, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This prayer is, is sometimes called the disciples' prayer. It is a prayer that is prayed by the believer. We are, if we are calling God our Father, then we believe and accept his authority. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples here who are believers. So this is not a prayer of salvation or conversion. This is a prayer of the believer to their heavenly Father. When the believer asks for forgiveness, we don't need to repent and be reborn again to regain our salvation. We are already sealed. This repentance is part of our sanctification process. And that's a big word that just means we, it's a process by which we are becoming more like Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin that remains in our lives. 
And this is kind of made clear in the, uh, the, the recount of when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He gets and uh, was preparing to wash the feet of, dis- of his disciples, and Peter stands up and says, Oh, you are not going to wash my feet. You, this, is, this is not right. And Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you do have no share with me. And immediately Peter, well, well then wash my whole, my whole body. Wash me, wash me clean. And Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So you see, we are like Peter. We are clean, but we have dirty feet. We are born again. We are clean in the eyes of God, but we are not yet made perfect. So we seek forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness continues as a believer. Now, at this point, I would like to kind of distinguish ultimate forgiveness versus relational forgiveness. I've heard it uh, described this way, that there is this distinction between judicial or ultimate uh, forgiveness and his father relational forgiveness. Ultimate forgiveness is when you come to believe in Jesus Christ. We confess our sinfulness, we believe he died for our sins, and we make him Lord and Savior of our lives. Our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. We are covered by Jesus, Christ Jesus' death and resurrection, and God looks us on us as clean and without sin. Relational forgiveness is sin that causes relational separation and loss of intimacy. An example is when a child disobeys their parent, the child does something that they weren't supposed to do, and they feel guilty. They feel separated, and the parents are disappointed. There's tension and shame. The relationship is strained, and the child can't look their parents in the eye. The the child is still a member of the family. However, reconciliation needs to happen and repair the relationship. Sometimes when I study my uh, Sunday school lesson or preparing even for this message, I have to stop and confess sin in my life. uh, There is a shame and distancing from the Holy Spirit that I feel is a barrier, and it separates me from God in a way that negatively affects my relationship. I heard a story about a boy who disobeyed his parents. And he was sent to his room to think about what he had done. And after being there for a while, uh, the parents said, you can come out now, Uh, we can talk about this. And he came down with a piece of paper, and the parents all, that's that's sweet, he's got, he's wrote down some things on his uh, piece of paper. And so they said, uh, what have you thought? What have you considered with your time in your room? What have you considered about what you've done? And he hands him the piece of paper and he said, well, I thought of what I wanted for Christmas and I have it all on my list right here. <laughs> so what do you think the parents thought of that, uh, of that response from their son? That's a lot, that's a lot of nerve. And it's a pretty, pretty good chance that the Christmas list was not taken very seriously in that moment. Well, so it is for the believer when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. Our requests and our petitions seem to have a barrier. There's, there's something that's not being received. Sin is described as a debt. Uh, and I think that's a very accurate way to describe sin. There's things about that illustration that, that uh, really translate.
we uh, debt, trespassing, trespass, transgression uh, are interchangeably used. But I still like the, the, the word debt. There was a time in my life when uh, the burden of debt weighed very heavily on, on me. Work was slow. Income was not coming in. Bills were mounting. It was a constantly on my mind. Um, how was I going to pay off this debt? It kept me up at night. I was losing sleep, and I saw no end in sight. Yeah, I was miserable. I know that maybe some of you can relate to that, um, but debt has a way of just weighing on a person, and I think it's such an accurate way to describe it. In verses 14 and 15, the word trespass is used. Trespass is a word to use to describe sin and also, and it means to step over the line. You are someplace you shouldn't be. As believers, we still sin, and we still need to ask God to forgive us. The next part of, this, of the Lord's Prayer here is Jesus saying, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I notice that in this prayer that Jesus is giving us focuses mainly on what God can do or what he will do. There's no call for obedience to the Ten Commandments. Just a short little phrase, as we forgive our debtors. We recognize his character or of his holiness and authority. We ask for his kingdom to manifest itself here on earth. We ask him to sustain us with our daily needs. We ask him to forgive us for our sins. We ask him to keep us safe from temptations, and we ask him to deliver us from evil. But wait, what's that part right after we, are, we ask him to forgive our sins? As we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. There are many places where we are commanded to forgive others, and the parable of the unforgiving servant seems to be the most obvious connection to this uh, idea of, of forgiving others. It starts in Matthew 18, and Peter comes to Jesus um, and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, a lot of times we look at that and, well, seven times, but there is, there is background to that. Rabbis at that time taught that we should forgive someone three times. And it was based on passages in Amos where Amos is, uh, is speaking for God here. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he goes on to repeat that phrase seven times. For the transgressions of Gaza and for, I will, for the three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Tyre, Edom, Israel, Judah. And so it was deduced that God forgave four times, and we are not God, so three, that's a good number for us to forgive. So uh, because we are not God, God forgives four. We, we forgive three. Well, Peter, he's doubled that. He's plus one. So in, in some senses... You think, well, Peter's kind of, he's starting to get this idea, you know, uh, seven. Should we give, forgive up to seven, Lord? No. Um, and Jesus says this to him, I do not 
tell you seven times, but 77 times. Now, I'm used to this passage saying 70 times 7, but I notice some translations say 77, so they're just, at any rate, it's a lot more than 7. Um, so, Jesus then says, begins with a parable in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Let's stop there for a moment. I was trying to figure out what, what's this value of a talent. And I found that a talent is equal to 6,000 denarii. Well, what's a denarii? Denarii is a day's wage. It was a silver coin in ancient times. And one denarii was considered what the average worker would receive for a day's pay. So um, it's difficult to figure out in today's monetary, what, what, what did that mean? In my own figures, I went, to, went online. Google is a great, <laughs> great source of information for that. The average income of American is, is $35,000. And that works out to about $140 a day. So if, if we plug in all the numbers, uh, the debt of this servant with those numbers is, would be $8.4 billion. So, um, that it's even that figure is difficult to. I mean, we have inflation, we have different standards of living. It, so, I, I oftentimes look at wage or money in the form of time. Um, how I don't know if, if if you look at things like that. That lunch costs me a half hour of work. This this car is going to cost me five years of work. This. I, when you look at terms, when you look at items in terms of time, it begins to kind of, because time is valuable. Um, that, you know, I, the one thing I, I, I hate to buy is a wallet. A wallet that holds my money costs, I don't know, 30, I have to work an hour, hour and a half to pay for the wallet that's going to hold my money. That just burns me up. I don't know why that does, but it just, I, I don't, I don't, anyway, uh, if we look at uh, this in, in, in the aspect of time, 10,000 talents would equal 60 million days of work. Now, I figured if you work 50 years, six days a week, not five days, six days a week, and 50 years, that's starting work about 20 and ending at 70, so that's, that's why I figured 50. That's 15,600 days. Okay, if you plug that into 60 million days, that's 192,000 years of work. Okay, this is a huge debt. Um, now that's if we look at 10,000, if it's actually 10,000. The word for 10,000 in the Greek is myrios or myria or something like that. And it's the largest word that the Greek 
have the largest number that has a word associated to it. 10,000 is it. There wasn't 100,000. There wasn't a word for 100,000. There wasn't a word for a million. 10,000 was it. And so, and if you look up the definition of that word, it can mean 10,000 or it can mean innumerable. It, it is a, you could say a gazillion. You, I mean, that's what a word we use sometimes, is a number that is out there that we have no idea what it is. And that's what this, this debt was. And uh, this part of the story symbolizes conversion. We have a debt. Sin is not a problem for us because it can't be undone or fixed. Yes, that's a problem. When we sin, what we did can't be undone. And hunter's safety and gun safety, they are always the, the, the phrase put out there that when that bullet leaves the barrel, you cannot bring it back. And to some degree, that is what sin is. But it's more than that. It's an even bigger problem. It's a problem that I don't think we can fully comprehend because we can't comprehend the holiness of, of God and what uh, sin to the, against that holiness of God looks like. That's why Moses was not allowed to see the face of God. God said to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Isaiah, when he was confronted with seeing God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. We are all aware that the penalty of sin and rejecting God is an eternity in hell. And many reject this idea. Even some professing Christians do. They ask, they ask what could we have possibly done to deserve that kind of punishment? In fact, that's why many, actually why many reject God and the idea that there is a hell. The assertion that eternity in hell is an unreasonable punishment for sin that only took place in a very small lifetime, a lifespan of a human being. It is reasoned, so I live this amount of time. <clears throat> and in this amount of time is the amount of time that I sin. Eternity and punishment in hell is an infinite, so these things don't match up. The problem with that is that it's not the correct way to look at it. The problem is that sin and rejection of an infinitely holy God and our debt to him is judged infinitely. That's why the just punishment for sin and rejection of Jesus is eternity in hell. We have infinitely, infinitely offended God. Now, I don't fully grasp this. Infinite, infinite, infinity and eternity are concepts that we say, but they are very difficult to understand, especially for this pea brain human mind who can't conceive of that, try as I might. The writer of Hebrews said that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. So when we look at talent this morning and our debt, I would like to propose to you 
that the debt that this servant and the debt we all have is beyond comprehension. It is more than just breaking the law that we can't undo. So what is the servant's, uh, what happens in this situation? So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And this is genuine repentance. This servant is acknowledging his debt. He is on his knees, prostrating before the king. He's not making excuses. However, he still does not fully comprehend the seriousness of his sin and his debt. We cannot begin to understand the hopeless situation we are all in, so we think there is something we can do to improve our desperate situation. We think we can pay it back. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to give more. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to serve the church more. You see, God, I'm going to do things. I'm going to pay you back. That is absurd. And to have him say that in front of him, I'll pay you back. You, you can't pay me back. It's a wonder he didn't laugh out loud to that response. Paul describes these things that we want to do as filthy rags. What happens? In 20, verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Conversion. Salvation. Even though he hasn't grasped the multitude of what the king has done, he is forgiven. Just like the servant, our debt is forgiven. All our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, wiped clean, this is God's grace and mercy. The weight of that burden is gone. And if you'll notice, the king didn't say this is a partial forgiveness. Uh, if you work for me 20 years, uh, then we'll call it good. It is all erased. It is all gone. There's nothing that he has to pay back. I just, I just want to have us realize the joy of that. Wow, completely forgiven. Imagine the weight lifted, the joy, the relief. Is not that just the best day ever? So what happens? What does the servant, how does the servant respond? In verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. Now, if, as I was saying earlier, if a denarii was a day's work using the number of $140 a day, uh, times 100 days is, is $14,000. Or if we want to look at it the other way, it's 100 days of work. That is not insignificant. If someone owes me 100 days work, that's, that's not nothing. That's, like, that's not no cost to me whatsoever. When we are wronged, it is painful. We're not made of stones. Sticks and stones do hurt me. We experience real pain and heartache in this world, and people lie to us, and they lie about us. They cheat us, and they steal from us. People make fun of us and ignore us. People do unspeakable things to us and sometimes even kill innocent loved ones. Some of these things even happen in church. 
And we do these things to each other intentionally and unintentionally. These deaths against us are real and they hurt. And I don't want to diminish that. This is what the servant is experiencing. He has been wronged and cheated, and it was a significant debt, and he reacted. There is some part of us that believes in our goodness. We want to think of our sin in this hierarchy. Some sins are much worse than others. Some degree that's true. However, we fail to comprehend our goodness with the holiness of God. In other words, we don't believe our debt to God is nearly as much as someone else. Even the worst offense you could possibly imagine still pales in comparison to the offense that we are to God. So what happens? When, this fellow, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus said in the parable that the unforgiving servant is turned over to jailers. And the Greek word used there, it, is, it means jailers or guards that torture prisoners. If you have unforgiveness in your life, you will be tormented. Bruce Wilkinson, a Christian author and teacher, claims that over 90% of those suffering with mental health issues have unforgiveness in their lives. I looked into this to verify uh, the claim, and it's true that unforgiveness does cause mental health issues, which includes depression and paranoia. I can't verify the 90%, but the point is unforgiveness torments us and it is not good for us. Now, if we come back to Matthew 6 and, and Jesus' commentary there at the end in, in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespassers. As a believer, I still believe this sin of unforgiveness does not affect our ultimate forgiveness or our salvation in Christ because of the context of the Lord's Prayer and the, the, the incident with, that Peter had with Jesus with his feet being washed. Our conversion is permanent. Like I said, our sins, past, present, and future are covered. How I do, however, I do believe there are relational consequences when we don't forgive. This message is repeated many times in Scripture. This is a, not a command that we can ignore. Paul says in Ephesians, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus says in Luke, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he, give, if he sins against you seven times in the day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Paul says in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. My intent this morning is, is to attempt to show the non-believer, the non-Christian, how offensive and enormous our debt is to God and how utterly lost and futile it is to be good enough to please God. That burden you feel can be just moments away from being, forgi being forgiven. I know many of us have been Christians for a long time and we take this forgiveness for granted and it is also my intent to remind the believer of the enormity of the debt that you have been released from. This should bring us great joy and happiness and so much relief. I wanted to remind us of the joy of our salvation this morning. There is nothing that compares to this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We deserve death and we got mercy. Lastly, God forgives, that's what he does. We are never more like God than when we forgive. And I wanna challenge us to reflect on the forgiveness of God to our brothers and sisters to our neighbors, and to those who have wronged us, and even our enemies. Be like our God in heaven who forgives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy and just, yet you are merciful and forgiving. Forgiving us and restore us, forgive us and restore us to the joy of our salvation and renew a right spirit within us. Help us to grasp the debt that you have erased so that we can forgive others in the same way that you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen.